Hello, I'm Zeb Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, our focus today is on hospitals at home as well as other advanced home-based medical interventions. And we are incredibly unfortunate to have a guest on our show, Dr. David Levine. Dr. Levine is a practicing general internist and a clinician investigator at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and uh, at the Harvard Medical School. His research is focused on digital health technology, measuring the quality and experience of outpatient care, as well as optimizing care at home. And he really sees his role as helping patients achieve the right care at the right time in the right place. Uh, and I quote here, uh, it's through designing and implementing innovative interaction spaces between a care team, technology, and a patient. And uh, we will definitely get into uh, understanding what he means by that. Uh, Dr. Levine is an assistant medical director uh, of Alternative Care Pathways, and I'm, I'm really interested in asking him more about that, for the Brigham Women's Physician Organization, uh, where he works to bring hospital-level care to patients' home, where a medical team provides acute care to acutely ill patients in their home as a substitute to traditional hospitalization. His work in digital health has included national studies of uh, seniors' use of digital health technology and how the uh, digital health changes uh, declines as as patients' health declines. Um, and he also has been doing a lot of work in the whole world of uh, virtual visits with uh, chronic care and primary care. Uh, David received his undergraduate degree from Pomona College in biology and politics. Uh, he actually earned a master's uh, in teaching, and I um, want to ask him a couple of questions about that. He received his medical degree from Washington University in St. Louis and completed his residency uh, at uh, New York University and uh, Bellevue Hospital in internal medicine primary care. He did complete a uh, internal medicine fellowship at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School and received his master's in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, David, it's uh, such a great pleasure having you on the program today. How are you doing? It's great to be here, Zev. Thanks. And uh, I know you are running from meeting to meeting. You are sought after and you're busy and um, just so excited to really talk to you about the work that you're doing, because I think it's really a game changer in, in healthcare. But uh, David, before we jump into that, um, I have to ask you, you know, I had a chance to look at some of the material you had sent me in your bio. And so did you, did you uh, first as an undergrad study special education? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a really, really wonderful part of starting out um, after college, I uh, was a high school chemistry teacher in inner city Chicago on the west side of Chicago. Um, I also served as department chair um, in one of the Chicago public schools, high schools um, on the west side um, for a few years. Oh, that's really cool. How do you um, how did you uh, make the move from from that into healthcare? What what what? what made you want to do that or was that always part of your plan you know that, that was, it's a great question that was a really difficult decision um i i was a fairly effective uh teacher in inside my four walls uh we, as teachers you always like to think about what happens inside your four walls and, and how you're able to drive students to to achieve more inside your four walls 
Um, however, I, I got to looking outside of the four walls and, uh, it was a very bleak picture there. So my students would get shot walking out of school. They uh, would have an asthma attack walking up four flights of stairs to my classroom. Um, and there was pretty much no healthcare to speak of, um, for them uh, or for their families. Um, I even ended up visiting students in their homes, um, uh, visiting them in the hospital, things of that sort. Uh, I guess you could say doing house calls as a teacher as well as a physician later on in life. Um, but I finally decided to make the transition um, into the medical sector um, when I, I wanted to really just add tools to my toolbox. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that getting an MD actually did that, to be very honest with you. It's uh, oftentimes as a physician, we put Band-Aids on things. We don't actually uh, get to the root cause of what's going on. I felt really fortunate to be able to continue my studies after um, after medical school and after residency to get a master's in public health so that I could actually design and innovate inside of the, the space to, to really drive systemic changes um, in the way we deliver care and think about um, health and health care for, for folks. Wow. So this is really fascinating. I mean, it sounds like your background in, in teaching uh, and particularly a special ed really gave you some insights into understanding who you're working with, your students, and now your patients that maybe if you hadn't had that background, you wouldn't have gotten through the, you know, through the traditional medical school and residency curriculum. Um, it, it sounds like you, you, you have a different perspective than most. I, I'd say so. And I, I also think it really gets to the idea that in my, in my opinion, well over half of what a physician does or at least should do is, is education in many ways. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I, I was able to bring a lot of the skills that I learned as a teacher, as a special ed teacher to, to that um, when I'm with a patient one-on-one, as well as when I'm thinking about um, how do we design something to either improve it or to just totally change it. Um, and a lot of those principles of teaching are with me when I'm doing those exercises. Wow, that's great. I, 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 I'm just thinking about my own medical education. I, I wish I had uh, attending physicians who had your background and training and disposition. Uh, very so, kind of you. <laughs> no, no, it's just I'm being honest with you. So, 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 David, one more question before we jump into the you know topic at hand. I, again, I noticed on your bio uh, and in your CV, it says you're the uh, assistant medical director of alternative care models uh, for the uh, Brigham Women's Physician Organization. So that that's really interesting. I've never seen that title before. Um, why did why was that that position or that role created? I'm just wondering what the responsibilities and accountabilities, and uh, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, great question. I don't think you'll see that that's, that title in, in most organizations. Uh, it's certainly a new one for Brigham. And it really gets to the, the idea that we are trying to innovate in completely new spaces. Um, it's the idea that, you know, we, we have had this type of care model for a very long time. Um, and tweaking it or making small iterative changes is not really going to get us to a place that, that we need to be. 
Um, we've shown that in some of uh, the health services work that I've done, where you know maybe we're seeing small, tiny incremental changes in in quality of outpatient care, for example, but you're not really seeing this the sea change that you need. Um, and so I think this is the idea that we really need to think about delivering care at a completely different site. Um, and that's, uh, that's really often what I try to think about is how can we completely change the site or the temporal nature of how we deliver the care. Um, and if we could get there, it's, it's a sea change of sorts. Uh, because we're saying, actually, it doesn't need to be in a bricks and mortar facility. Um, it might be in your home. Maybe it's in a park. Uh, maybe it's at a barber shop. Um, but it's uh, it's at a, at a totally different um, venue than than we've previously imagined. And that's interesting because that phrase, the right care, the right place, the right time, you know, uh, right person. Most of the times when that has been used in the past, it really is saying, okay, where do we? send the patient? Do they go to the hospital? Do they go to the ED uh, emergency room? Do they go to a doctor's office? Do, do they go to urgent care? And you're actually extending that way beyond that. Uh, you, you're really talking about, you know, bringing the care to the patient as opposed to bringing the patient to the care. Is that, am I, am I tracking with you? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's funny. That phrase is, I don't know who invented that phrase. It might, might have been the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Um, but it, it often changes. Oftentimes the phrase is, uh, the right care, the right patient at the right time. And then I often like to add in the right place. Um, and it's, some folks have always had that from the beginning. Um, but, uh, oftentimes that is not part of the question. Uh, it's really not. It's, well, do we, do we, uh, Put this, do we deal with this person in an outpatient setting or an inpatient setting? Um, do we do day surgery or inpatient surgery? Uh, not, um, do we treat them at home? Uh, that is, that's often not, not on the horizon. Yeah. And just to, just to ask you another question about this alternative care model, medical director. Uh, so how much of your time is devoted to that specific role? Is that a big part of what you do? Yes, a small a small amount of my time. Um, I'm I'm a practicing primary care physician. I work at a community health center, uh, so that's a, sm- a small amount of my time. Um, working uh, on um, the physicians organization team is a small amount of my time, and then the the rest is research, um, where I have just an awesome opportunity to collaborate with folks. Um, internationally as well as very locally on lots of different exciting projects. So one more question about the, your, your role as medical director of alternative care models. How do you have big buckets of work that you would say fall into that role? Cause I could, I can imagine there could be lots of work that might, but I'm just curious what, how, how you construct that role. Yeah, we really think of it, as a home plus set of work um, and, and think of it as acute care, um, transitions in that care, more outpatient work as well, um, and trying to figure out how to deliver um, the different sorts of care that we would traditionally give in an emergency department and in an inpatient setting and finding different sites to do that, um, namely the home. Um, but there could be other places that we end up getting to think about in the future. Um, right now, our main focus is on delivering that care in the home. 
Okay, so that's that's a big part. So let's let's jump into that. So uh, you know, as you're saying, you, your work is bring is focused on that. What I find different and exciting about your work is that most of us who are in this work think about the home virtual care or home care in terms of subacute or or you know chronic virtual visits things like that but you're actually talking about acute high-tech medical care in the home and i know you also I, I believe you also do chronic disease management as well but let's just focus on the acute uh high-tech stuff and so you're literally this idea of bringing hospital care into the home what i guess my question is why why do that what is what are the benefits to doing that and 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 what problem are you trying to solve is it you know is it better and in what ways is it better than than just allowing hospital care to continue in hospitals yeah great great set of questions there are i think a, a lot of places to start with that there are a bunch of you can start on the problem side right you could say here are the problems with the way we currently deliver acute care and then you could also start on the um the, the innovative side of what can we do even better than what we do right now. Um, I think if you start off with the problems with hospitalization, there are a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of unintended clinical consequences. For example, um, almost one in 10 adults who end up in an American hospital will have some sort of adverse event that happens to them, whether that's a hospital-acquired infection, a fall, delirium, things like that. Uh, one in four um, older adults will lose functional status that they'll never regain um, after hospitalization. And you and I have probably seen that all the time when people just sit in bed day after day and they get weaker um, when that happens. And many of them will also become delirious while they're there. And we know that these things are all associated with worse outcomes when it comes to discharge and return to the community. Um, I think the other the other big bucket of problems when it comes to acute inpatient hospitalization is that there's actually pretty poor access to inpatient care, even in major metropolitan areas and certainly in rural areas. So we think about um, 12 hour emergency department waits just to decide where the person's going, home or upstairs. Um, and many, many general medical wards are well over 100% capacity and unable to really care for the large load of patients coming through their doors. Um, and then I think finally, the, the last bucket to really think about with problems with hospitalization is, is the cost. It is the most expensive place that we can put folks uh, to care for them. Um, and that's a problem because a third of our healthcare dollars are spent on inpatient hospitalization. Um, and so it turns out that home hospitalization can actually head on fix all three of those issues in a really nice way um, because it is getting the right care to the right patient at the right time in the right place. Um, we're, we're seeing many fewer unintended clinical consequences when patients are at home. Uh, we can dig into that a lot more. Um, we're then alleviating um, inpatient access issues for patients who truly, truly need an inpatient bed. Um, and we've shown um, in, with some preliminary published data as well as some um, pub data that's yet to be published, uh, some very large cost reductions in the cost of caring for these folks um, when they're in their home compared to uh, in the hospital. You know, I, I think all these points are fantastic. You're raising in terms of the uh, problems we have and the problems, quite honestly, that 
that patients encounter in terms of adverse uh, events, uh, even in the best of hands. I mean, you know, infections, um, resistant uh, microbes, uh, you know, just the list of, of uh, unintended consequences you're talking about in the hospital. But the other point you're making, which I had really n- not thought of uh, as I was looking through the studies until you just were, were answering the question, was that this issue of capacity. And, and in some sense, what you're doing right now, you and your colleagues at, both at the Brigham and across the country who are doing hospital at home, I think there's something really, really important about this at this very moment. Because the problem, as you stated, I mean, hospitals are at capacity across the country. And the only option that they see at the moment in the absence of what you're doing and bringing into healthcare is to build larger hospitals and add on, right? Exactly. I mean, they're adding on more floors, more hospital beds. The problem with that is that's not a short-term solution because you build a hospital bed um, or hospital ward or hospital floor or hospital you know, unit or hospital building, and that building's there for the next 20 or 30 years. So you've sunk a tremendous amount of capital in, into something that's going to be around for a long time, uh, and, and you've spent the money. And I think that one of the reasons I was I was excited and even more so at this point about speaking to you about this and getting it out there is that if if hospital leadership understands that there's an alternative to building larger hospitals and more hospital beds, um, they need to know it now before they make those decisions and and start investing in this and really uh, doing more research and making sure that it's the right thing to do. And I'm sure you can have a lot to say about that. But um, I, so I do think it's a really, really critically important uh, uh, issue you're working on with not tens, but, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars that are at stake for systems across the country. Does that is that something you you all talk about and recognize? Oh, yeah, I think you're 100 percent on point. Um, this is this is essentially building an acute care infrastructure without the traditional bricks and mortar that we think about. Um, so I'll give you an example of uh, folks doing um, home hospital in Australia. Um, in, in Victoria, Australia, there is an enormous home hospital program. Same in Barcelona, Spain, where there can be many, many patients who are home hospitalized at once. Um, and there is no need for expanding the brick and mortar institution. There's only a need for further tweaking and, and improving and potentially expanding the home hospitalization front. Um, and I think that is and would be a paradigm shift for most hospital executives um, who, when they see that they're reaching capacity more often than not, the thing to do is build another tower. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We do that all the time in this country. Right. Uh, and instead, I think the answer would be to move resources into the community um, and deliver that care in the home um, with oftentimes higher quality, better safety, um, and a higher patient experience um, that ends up happening, um, which is work that we're we've been doing and are continuing to do to try to show the the, the benefits. Yeah, and I want I want to get into the research um, and, and those outcomes you're talking about the comparison because I I suspect that most people aren't aware that studies uh, have already been done and are in progress demonstrating head to head the hospital at home versus the hospital in the hospital. But one question about this, you know, uh, the hospital at home is something that's been utilized, as you say, leveraged in other countries. Is one of the 
if you're a hospital executive and you're you're thinking about this and you're listening to this program now, or you're looking at this research and looking at this literature, do can do you get paid in our country at this point in time for hospital at home, or is that an impediment to moving forward at this at this moment in time? So the payment structure is certainly an impediment at this moment. So there is no such thing as a DRG that's billable in the home right now. Um, so, and that's probably the biggest reason that you don't see massive use of this model. Uh, the fact is, is that not everybody even knows that this model exists and is is so so helpful for patients. Um, but there's also a very very few and far between payment mechanisms in a fee for service world, which is what we live in still. The place that you do see this thriving automatically um, are in shared risk contracts. Um, where the hospital is on the line. Um, certainly in capitated worlds, this makes so much sense immediately. Um, and that's why you see Medicare Advantage plans doing home hospital, um, closed HMO systems doing home hospital, um, as well as systems like ours that have a very large shared risk population. You're saying um, certainly in a capitated environment? Yeah, uh, so certainly in a capitated environment, we see this, and that's why you see Medicare Advantage plans doing this, um, ACOs trying to get into this area, um, and folks who have shared risk for their patient population. So, so let me ask you a question. Why isn't, I mean, given the, I mean, hospital costs are one of the largest, if not the largest cost when it comes to, you know, when you look at ACO payments or Medicare payments, I mean, clearly medication is is up there as well but but given the enormity of hospital costs and, and in general why isn't CMS and HHS jumping on this and investing in both the research and application of hospital at home and and, and creating a payment as you said a DRG for it yeah so there has certainly been a move toward that um, there's some very exciting things happening right now in the field so first of all uh, the physicians uh, advisory committee, um, to CMS, the PTAC it's called, um, has actually very recently unanimously approved home hospital as a care modality. Uh, this happened thanks to the really good work of folks at Sinai and some other areas, some other programs. Um, that recommendation is sitting on the desk of the Secretary of HHS and in CMMI. Um, CMMI has actually funded um, a, a grant-funded project of home hospital at Mount Sinai. Um, so there certainly is that interest. Um, I think, unfortunately, it's hard to get past the finish line with a lot of these things. The same way that we see telemedicine, um, the uptake of telemedicine, the uptake of some newer codes that uh, CMS has offered being very, very slow right now. Um, so we are really excited. I think locally in Boston, we're fortunate to be working on some local payer contracts with uh, some larger commercial interests. But um, I think until we see larger movement um, in D.C. with CMS, it's still going to be um, folks who are in capitated plans, shared risk plans, or are able to make um, individual contract negotiations with commercial payers. And, and who across the country, uh, and you mentioned Mount Sinai, and, and they've clearly, Dr. Fetterman, uh, Alex Fetterman at Sinai, and others have published uh, on this and, and 
proven, you know, that this works and that it's, you know, there are major advantages to hospital at home compared to hospital at hospital. But who else across the country is is doing some really good work in this area? Yeah, so the VA is a, is definitely a leader in this area. They have home hospital programs in multiple towns, uh, Philadelphia and uh, Cleveland being two of the largest that I'm aware of. Uh, they, again, the VA is in, in a closed shop, shall we say, that uh, they are on the line for their, their patients' dollars. And so it makes perfect sense for them to be engaging in this kind of a care model. Um, similarly, you see um, some small um, but ongoing work in uh, places like Kaiser um, that are, again, inside of that, that HMO version um, of, of care. And so uh, and then you see it in some just very innovative spots, um, like tiny little dots across the country. You could probably consider uh, Brigham as one of those um, innovative spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so so let, let me jump into asking this question. Describe how hospital at home works. Someone comes into the emergency room or maybe it's an elective admission. How, how are they uh, 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 discharged to the or sent to the home hospital at home, and what conditions are you currently uh, doing that for, and h- how do they get the care at home? What what does that look like? Yeah, so patient shows up to the emergency department, and the emergency department decides the patient needs to spend um, time in the hospital. They need to be admitted, and we have an amazing collaboration with our ED. Uh, they are. Um, really, really wonderful to work with uh, on this. And so essentially the um, emergency department says to us, we're admitting Mrs. Jones, let's say, um, would you like to evaluate her for home hospitalization? And so our team is able to do a very you know, simple set of screening on the patient. Uh, we, we've built several risk scores to make sure that a patient isn't too ill to go home. Uh, again, because we're, we're not doing intensive care at home. We're doing acute care. Uh, so we want to prognosticate against needing the ICU. And we then um, essentially approach the patient, make sure that they're interested in getting their care at home. And if so, uh, the patient travels home with one of our care, care team members. Um, and we're able to, in a very sleek fashion, um, bring exactly the things from the hospital that the patient needs. Maybe that's oxygen, maybe that's an inhaler setup, maybe that's an IV pump with IV medications, and so on. Um, and we're able to set up uh, also some very sleek sensors in the home so that, you know, we don't, we don't pitch a tent in the patient's living room, uh, but we're able to keep an appropriate eye on the patient, um, whether it's by telemetry, heart rate, respiratory rate, things of that sort, uh, 24-7. Um, so that we're able to provide acute care um, in their home. And then we follow the patient every day. Uh, Physician visits the patient in the home. Our nurse and um, nursing team visits the patient in the home. And uh, we then discharge the patient from home to home, um, uh, we like to say, and so that the patient can essentially be set up for success by the time we're discharging them. And and so what type of conditions or diagnoses, admitting diagnoses, would you, are you treating in the home that otherwise would have been in the hospital, patients would have been in the hospital? Yeah, so this is really the bread and butter of internal medicine. So it's any infectious process, those things usually boil down to pneumonia, complicated UTI, cellulitis. We do heart failure exacerbations. We do certain arrhythmias at home. 
Um, we also do COPD and asthma exacerbations, um, the need for anticoagulation, in case of a DVT or PE. We do diabetes and, and many of its complications, buckets like that. And what percentage of the, you know, at any given day, what percentage of the admissions that are normally typically going into hospital do you think could be uh, diverted or siphoned off into hospital at home? Yeah, that is probably the million dollar question, Zev. <laughs> so um, I get asked that a lot. Um, and it, a lot of it depends on um, your local context. A lot of it depends on the technology that we're going to have today versus tomorrow uh, versus 10 years from now. Um, my, my best guess on that is that right now, today, a quarter of the patients um, who are in a, you know, a quaternary, tertiary quaternary care institution, which is Brigham, can be cared for at home. Um, if you ask me that next year, maybe even in two years, I think that number is going to be exploding upward, I hope more than half, um, as we really get the ability to bring even more of the high-tech things that we do in hospitals every day to patients. Um, it turns out that a lot of that high-tech that we do isn't even necessary. Um, our, our, some of our work shows much, much lower utilization of things like lab testing and imaging and consultation um, at home versus in the hospital. Um, yet patients are having the same outcomes in terms of cost, experience, and readmission and things of that sort. And so the person is at home and... And they're being monitored. And then is there uh, just with that alone? So is there someone on the other end? Is there a bunker at the hospital or somewhere where your patients across the community who are at hospital home are being monitored? Or and, and do they does the nurse come in once or twice a day? I mean, how many visits if I was, uh, let's say, getting treated for, uh, as you mentioned, a deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism and I'm at home and I'm anti you're giving me IV at home and and I'm on anticoagulation and how many times a day would I expect to see a nurse or a doctor for how long would they be visiting uh, if I needed something how would I contact them how does that work yeah so we have attempted to completely decentralize um, there are some folks who try to have a central command area so to speak for their home hospital patients uh, we think that, you know, getting away from bricks and mortar the, as much as possible is really the way to go. Um, so everything is, is, is pretty decentralized all on, you know, phones and tablets and in the cloud. And um, we, we track each other's movements even. Um, and we're able to task each other uh, via a cloud app um, and are able to see telemetry and, and vital sign alarms um, frankly, anywhere in the world. Um, but certainly we stay local when we're treating our patients. And we um, can respond to alarms and things like that without the need for any sort of centralized support. Um, the, um, the, the, the amount of care that a patient gets is completely tailored to that patient. So, you know, if it's a very, very ill patient with heart failure, maybe they'll get four visits that day. Um, because they need twice daily checks of their blood and they need um, extra extra pushes of IV medication and things like that. Um, so we really, we really, really tailor to the patient, which I think is another one of the fundamental differences between home hospital and hospital, um, is that a hospital is one of the least agile organisms that 
uh, we could concoct. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what the patient needs, they will have 24-hour nursing. Um, no matter what the patient needs, they will have a single or double-bedded room. Um, the same things will be in that room, um, and the same processes will tick pretty much irrespective of what they need. Phlebotis is going to come around, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Contrast that entirely with the home hospital where we're trying to deliver exactly what the patient needs, no more, no less. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to do that because they're in their home and we can see what they actually need. Um, so if they don't actually need all this nursing care or they don't actually need um, several different kinds of uh, interventions, then we're not going to give it to them um, because it's actually going to end up benefiting them. Uh, and so I think that's a, a huge contrast. It's a huge place where there's cost savings, um, but it's also um, a huge place where there's improvements in patient experience. Um, we have so few blood draws in home hospitalized patients compared to patients who ended up hospitalized, for example. That's just a big patient experience thing um, as well. That's really fantastic. So so this is sort of getting into, I mean, I have so many other questions about the how you do it, but I'm going to hold back and I'm, I'm, and I'm particularly impressed uh, with the decentralization, the idea that there's a team that is not sitting in a bunker somewhere, but you are connected to the patient uh, with monitors and sensors and can get, you know, immediate feedback and get, you know, get the right assistance to the patient. Um, what, you know, I guess, well, before I, I ask you about the advantages, and maybe this actually will be the leading the leading question, you know, I, I have to think people are wondering, you know, what if I, what if there's an emergency, right? In the hospital, you have a code team and, you know, people could respond in seconds. So you're laughing. I mean, it's, it's clearly not a laughing matter, but you know, wh- that question must come up. And so I, I, I'm, I'm compelled to ask you that. Of course. Yeah. So we, we do have standard operating procedures, um, as all should. Um, and you know, we, we certainly, um, have, uh, have an issue of needing to respond to urgent issues um, with our patients. And so, you know, liken it to a hospital. You you said that a code team assembles in seconds. I wish that were true, to be very honest. Um, Code teams can sometimes take five minutes to properly get the the tools they need and the people there. And and frankly, to get an expert there can take 15 minutes even um, if you if you really, really count the clock in some code situations. Um, so contrast that again with the home. Like, there's pretty much no way we're ever going to be able to respond faster than a, than a hospital team. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a given, especially if a patient lives uh, further away. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we do certainly have, um, you know, re- standard operating procedures for different um, poor things that could happen to a patient. We also uh, have an amazing 911 infrastructure in this country. Um, Thank goodness we have almost never used it. Um, But that is something that we certainly have in our back pocket um, to help us with a, with a, with the need for an emergent response. You know, and I think also just to be fair about this, uh, you know, the the patients that you're selecting the currently the 25% of of, uh, hospital admissions that are uh, potential uh, hospital home candidates, and as you say, in the future, uh, well over that as the technology advances over the next two, three years, these patients are not the patients that are going to be at risk for serious sorts of things happening, um, like arrhythmias or whatnot, 
That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's part of the risk scoring that we do up front um, is that we are, again, prognosticating that folks aren't bound for the ICU. They're not bound for that terrible code blue emergency event. Um, Of course, we could never predict that with 100% certainty. Um, But those are definitely the the folks that we are not that interested in taking home yet until we do get to a technological place where we can respond uh, remotely just as if we were there. We just can't do that yet. Um, And so the people we're taking home are much less likely for things like that to happen. Right. And and again, also to be just uh, honest and fair about it. um, And and I've spent years as a hospitalist. uh, So so I, I am familiar with how hospitals work and. You know, the truth is in the hospital, if, if the patient has a question or you want to see a doctor or a nurse, it doesn't happen in seconds, as you were saying. And, uh, and you could sit there all day long and you'll see the doctor and the team maybe once a day for, you know, half a minute and, um, and the nurses come and go. And so, you know, I really, what sounds so appealing about this, and again, I didn't really get this from reading the articles and the studies, but, but from listening to you, what sounds so appealing is this, is that it actually is a much more customized form of care than a patient sitting in a hospital bed in a hospital room. And of course, we haven't even said anything about the fact that they're in their home. And so, you know, you don't have to worry. It, they're they're comfortable. It's it's contextual, uh, especially in the elderly where they you know people get to delirium uh, from being in the hospital. Uh, you can have the food that you want and are used to. You can have family and friends around more comfortably. You don't have the risk of all those infections uh, and resistant uh, infections in the hospital. So tremendous, uh, not just for, you know, the cost savings are huge. The customization is huge, but just to me, it seems like they're tremendous benefits. And I, I want you to respond to that. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're you're definitely, you're making me think of a, a, something that people often ask is that, well, aren't you just pushing a lot of the the burden onto the family or the caregivers in the home? Um, And it's, it's funny what you just said about hospitals is, is, it's very true. You know, think uh, we, we, we had that concern that, oh my goodness, are we going to be, you know, burdening, uh, the, 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 mo- the mother or burdening the daughter who's caring for the mother, um, by keeping that patient at home. And when you flip it and you think about the caregiver burden that happens in hospitals, it's actually extraordinary, right? Think of the story, the following story. Like think of, uh, you know, the, the woman who has to drive in, uh, for half an hour, uh, through traffic, pay $40 to park, get lost multiple times trying to find, let's say, her husband's room, misses the doctors and the nurse and the the team rounding by five minutes, asks if they'll come back, and they're not going to come back. They never do. They're too busy. And and then essentially gets lost again trying to find lunch because she's so starving and dehydrated. And then maybe if she's lucky, a, a junior physician will come back in the afternoon to talk with her. Um, but she's exhausted by the end of it. Here she thought she was trying to support her husband while he was hospitalized. And she ends up either sleeping upright in a chair or going back home, you know, absolutely demoralized and tired and trying to do it all the next day. Um Contrast that with being at home where the team comes to you, um, essentially on your schedule and, um, is then able, uh, to treat, to treat and talk with you in, in your kitchen at your dining room table, um, and work with, work with you there. Um, it, it just so many of even the intangibles that, that we aren't even measuring yet, uh, are occurring there. 
Absolutely. I mean, you're so right. I mean, the benefits to not only the patient, but also to their family is just profound. So what about the the research in terms of the head-to-head, you know, looking at, you know, adverse events and, you know, admissions and readmissions and admissions to, to nursing homes afterwards? What What is it what does the research tell us in terms of the efficacy and safety of care and, and, and all those sorts of things? So up until recently, there hadn't yet been a randomized control trial done on home hospital in the United States. Um, a lot of really beautiful work has been done by Bruce Leff previously on home hospital um, in a single arm intervention manner, meaning everybody got to do home hospital. Um, And essentially, Bruce showed that um, when patients went home, there was very similar safety, quality, uh, 20 to 30% cost reduction, and improved patient experience as well. Um, The question, and sometimes the critique, uh, especially from payers, were were twofold. One, um, would these patients have actually been admitted? Um, which is hard to say sometimes when you have um, an intervention that you're offering to everyone. And the second question um, was, uh, would, um, would they have actually needed the um, high level of care um, that you ended up giving them? And so the, 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 the area uh, of, of research that this is in is really ripe for a randomized control trial. Um, and we were fortunate enough to do the first of those in the United States recently and pilot that as, an, as a randomized control trial. Um, we started this off um, actually back in 2016 and published it just a few, few months ago. Shows you how slow we're able to move um, medical uh, innovation forward in, in, in the literature. But um, from our work, we actually were able to corroborate a lot of what Bruce Leff has shown. Um, in the single arm work um, with, with some Im- important differences. And again, this is a small pilot. We have some future work that will be coming out soon um, that's, that's even more definitive. Um, but we were able to show large cost reductions. Again, we were able to show that patients um, were utilizing less care when they were at home. So, for example, patients um, were having about three blood draw orders um, in, at home versus almost 23 wow. orders for lab tests when they were in the hospital. Uh, patients were getting imaging studies less often um, at home. Patients were getting consultations less often at home. Um, and we were also able to quantify um, patient activity um, and so, Zev, as a hospitalist, you, you probably saw this, but patients don't really move when they're in the hospital. We were able to show that patients took, on average, 160 steps uh, when they were in the hospital versus 1,800 steps when they were at home. Um, and then we're able to look at 30 days and we're able to show a trend toward reduced readmissions. Our, our tiny pilot was not um, powered, obviously, for 30-day readmission rates, uh, but we did show a, a pretty impressive trend toward fewer readmissions that uh, we're excited to, to look at in our larger um, randomized control trial. And, and some of the work that's been done before has, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it has demonstrated a reduction in, in readmissions and, and the need for nursing homes. Is that after admission? Is that true or am I reading too much into the literature? No, that's absolutely correct. Um, but again, these are in quasi-experimental um, study designs. So these are 
um, where a control group was created after the intervention was done on patients who are similar, um, which is a very valid way uh, of studying this, but brings up a question of, is that control group really the same kinds of patients who would have done home hospital? Um, and that's an open question, and that's why a randomized control trial would really definitively answer those questions. Got it. Okay. So, so it's you know, all in all, it it sounds like if if the appropriate patients are being selected for hospital home, this sounds like the right thing to do for patients, for their families, uh, for payers. For employers, uh, for CMS, um, and it sounds like what's holding it up is just inertia, just the time it takes to for people to realize this and do something about it to create the payment for it. I mean, that's that's just how it's coming across to me. I think I think you're correct. Sadly, uh, you know, there's there's great work that's been done that shows that it that takes the medical world ten to fifteen years to adapt to a, a completely slam dunk innovation. Uh, whether it's as simple as a new class of drugs that you know lengthen life and 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 health and health related quality of life, it takes us physicians as well as the healthcare system um, over a decade often to implement those things. And I think you're seeing that here. Uh, you know, Bruce Leff published his first work uh, in the early 2000s, and here we are still. We don't we we have much more than we ever did, um, but we certainly don't have. Uh, have this kind of a model the way that we see in France, the way that we see in Victoria, Australia, the way that we see in Torino, Italy, for example. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, it, it sounds like there is some movement. It sounds like the right people are looking at it. Yeah. So I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's a very exciting time right now, uh, for, for home hospital and, and for moving care home and optimizing the quality of time at home. You know, we haven't even spoken about moving other kinds of care home, but it's, um, there, there's a lot of momentum right now. I, I probably get five calls a week from different institutions who are recognizing the value of moving care home, both for their patients, for their organization, for their clinicians. Uh, we, we didn't talk about it. We've done some preliminary work of looking at burnout, for example, among home hospital clinicians, it's way lower than we would expect for people delivering acute care. Um, so I think whichever way you look at it, uh, whether it's the patient, the payer, the provider, um, the caregiver, uh, th- this is really a win-win situation in a lot of ways. And so I think because um, we have a lot of interest from the ground up, um, and we're also now producing some incredibly high-quality evidence um, that uh, and we have a PTAC that's approved uh, the home hospital model for HHS to look at. Um, I, I'm hope I'm very hopeful and very excited that a lot of these things may coalesce together in into a um, into a big home hospital movement in the U.S. This is so meaningful, so important, so immediate. Um, so, are you? You say you you said you were getting at one point. You said you, you're getting five or more calls a week, pretty much a call a day from folks around the country who are interested in this. So is, are you, are you all either doing this now or planning to help others establish this or build these or, you know, was that, is that not quite where, where you're at yet? No, it absolutely is. We are, uh, like I said, I think that there is just a really important ground swelling of interest in home hospital and moving care home and improving quality of time at home because it is such 
a win-win-win for patient, payer, provider, caregiver, everyone, that um, we see really a groundswell from, from the bottom up. We're, we're seeing some important movement, I think, at the top, particularly at CMS with the, the PTAC uh, approval of home hospitalization, um, that uh, right now, from a research standpoint, we're very interested in are actively putting together a cohort of institutions that want to be part of a larger randomized controlled trial of home hospital with the idea that once they've done that work, they can then bring it into, um, into, into the real lives of all of their patients and, and even spread it further. Because I think what we need are an enormous number of places that, that can do this work and then can spread it um, elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so David, um, I, I just want to be mindful of your time. I've taken you way beyond what I promised you. And so um, I, I think, you know, perhaps give you a chance if there's one final comment and then just thank you so much for being on the podcast, for doing this work. I, I have to tell you though, I, I, I have so many questions still about this, but also about some of the other work you're doing in terms of chronic disease management and, and follow-up visits in the home, uh, as well as that transition uh, from the, the hospital at home to the uh, post-acute care uh, at home. So I, if it's okay with you, I'm going to make the formal request that we uh, get back on again um, and uh, do another podcast episode in, in the not too distant future. If that's well, okay, that's very with you. kind. I'd be happy to be welcome back. Yeah, I love it. So, um, any final thoughts or? Uh, I know you're probably rushed to get to your next meeting. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I think the the most important thing is is for folks who are considering changing the way they they do their their daily tasks to think about the home um, and to think about the fact that we have created an entire healthcare system that for some reason has not changed in almost a hundred years in the way it cares for acutely ill folks and that is essentially we put them in a bed in a hospital we probably give them a window we put a water jug beside their table we round on them um, we use some of the very same medicines and lab tests we did almost a hundred years ago. Um, and we really haven't changed the way we deliver that care. Um, and instead we've only further centralized it and, and made uh, enormous, enormous medical centers, um, to, to provide that care and thinking about and reimagining the way that we could deliver that care in someone's home where, where they live, where they dwell every single day, I think has enormous potential, um, that is, has yet to be tapped, um, in any, in any real way. Um, and so when someone's thinking about how to do something better, think about doing it in the home. Yeah, no, it's, it's so well said. And, and as you're talking, the, the, uh, imagination, the imaging of what healthcare could be like. And we, you know, we have the technology and as you say, in the next two to three years, it'll even be well beyond what we're capable of today. So it's not the, the technology is not the issue. The limitation as always is our own thinking. And so um, I, I think the way you're reframing and redesigning, reorganizing care is brilliant. I, I so support it and um, would love to help you in any way I can. And, you know, just Good luck with all the work, and, and we will definitely be talking again sometime soon. So, so Dr. David Levine, can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to talk to us about Hospital Home today. Thanks, Ev. Really, really big pleasure to be with you today.
Thanks, David. And as always, uh, I'd like to take a moment just to turn to our listeners and thank those of you out there who are taking care of patients each day. And uh, those of you who are supporting the providers of care, this is where the critically important and challenging work is happening. And, you know, again, I feel compelled each and every uh, podcast to just recognize and just uh, share my appreciation and gratitude for the work you all doing. Um, I hope that you've uh, gotten as much out of this interview with uh, David Levine as I have and look forward to uh, our next interview together. Until next time, be well.